welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel. In today's podcast, I am joined by Greg Thomas, somebody that we have had on the podcast before, and I really appreciate Greg, who he is, what he stands for, and the way he thinks about the world. Today, we're going to be talking about race. Greg has been thinking a lot about this topic recently and putting out some really beautiful work around this. So we will talk about deracializing the world, why we need to understand the process of racialization when it comes to our conversations around race and racism and how doing so allows us to put the pieces together. I think this is a topic that's really important. I love bringing in topics which are outside of the primary focus of coaching, but actually have a huge impact on the work that we do and are really important and can help us recontextualize the way we think about ourselves and the relationships we have with others and the world. So this is one of those conversations. Greg is the co-founder, along with his wife, Jewel Kinch Thomas, of the Jazz Leadership Project, which advocates for the power of music to inspire and empower people and organizations. They use America's fine art of jazz to give individuals and companies an innovative model grounded in musical principles and practices to develop leadership capacity, bolster team synergy, and enhance inclusion. If you are listening to this podcast and you are a coach, you might want to consider doing two things. You might want to consider joining our global community of transformational coaches. So you can head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign-up box there, And you'll stay in the loop about all the things we create, which are not this podcast. You can also check out our online coach training offerings there. We have coach training programs on various subjects from developmental psychology to neuroscience to somatics to presence in coaching. All right, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Greg Thomas. All right, Greg, I'm I'm really pleased to be with you again and excited to dive in. Let me just check how you're doing, first of all. I'm doing great. So glad to join you again, Joel. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast yet again. Yeah. Yeah, I really loved our last conversation. We were talking about uh, cultural intelligence. And I remember I like left that call feeling, I was like plugged into the embodied kind of systemic potential of that idea. And it was quite mind-blowing. So, you know, um, I invite people to check that one out. And we're going to probably go into that again. We'll go there today. So, um, but actually a good place to start, I think, is just, I I like doing this now. You know, maybe you could just give us a sense of who you are in the sense of like, what's this work you're doing in the world at the moment? What What are you bringing into the world? Yeah. Well, one of the key words is entrepreneur. Entrepreneur is what I am, both in a business sense through the Jazz Leadership Project that I co-founded and co-lead with my partner and wife, Jewel Kins Thomas, but also as a social entrepreneur, where I'm dealing with issues revolving around race, racialization, and an approach to countering those ideas called deracialization but also a program or a project more so called the Shaping an Omni-American Future um, Project and Initiative in which JLP, the Jazz Leadership Project through my person is collaborating with uh, several organizations, several Jewish organizations to combat illiberalism that appears as racism and anti-Semitism 
and doing it by focusing on cultural excellence and focusing on an omni-American ideal. Omni-American is an idea that comes from my mentor, Albert Murray, which takes a look at the manyness of the contributory um, groups and cultures that comprise America and the oneness. This is e pluribus unum, out of many one, that comes from the ideals found in America's founding documents. And so on one end, I'm a business entrepreneur. On another end, I'm a social entrepreneur, uh, focusing on ways of dealing with social and cultural issues to counter the things that are keeping us back and to focus more and move towards what I'm, I strongly feel and believe are more generative and productive ways of seeing ourselves as individuals and in groups um, and the ways that we can move together, not only as Americans, but um, it's, a, it's really a global and cosmopolitan effort also. So I'm, I'm involved in quite a bit, but I'm, I feel fulfilled because I feel that as I approach the age of 60, that I am doing what I was intended to do uh, on earth. Mm. Uh, beautiful. That must be a beautiful feeling. And actually, maybe a good place to start is, you know, you said, uh, I, I like to explore the generative ways that uh, we can see ourselves that can help us move forward. I want to go there, but maybe maybe a good place to start is how do you feel that uh, we're being held back? You know, what are some of these views maybe around ra race, race and racialization that are prevalent? It's been such a, uh, a big topic in the last few years, especially, I think. Um, but maybe you could, yeah, kind of paint the picture there. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, for the last 400 or so years in the, in the West, the idea of there being groups of people who are subspecies, that you have human races, which are different subpopulations of human beings that are different, not only in their outer appearance, but that their outer appearance are markers for differences internally for differences in the way different groups see and think. And that's based on them having, you know, different skin color, different races, because they come from different places and they have a different propensities. And, you know, this process of creating races is done through a system called racialization. And I've been, um, I think that it's very important for people to understand that it's not just about race and racism. If you don't understand the process of racialization and a worldview, a detrimental worldview called a racial worldview, then it's hard to put all the pieces together, okay? So racialization is the process through which races are created. And it's a five-step process. And I um, give due attribution to Dr. Carlos Hoyt uh, for his work found in his book, 
the arc of a bad idea, understanding and transcending race, who, by the way, I, I just recently engaged in a one-day conference in Lexington, Massachusetts, co-facilitated by Carlos Hoyt, Dr. Sheena Mason, who advocates what she calls uh, a theory of racelessness. And that was a great one-day event. But this racialization process, I really learned about through his work. And so there's a, there's a, you know, if you're talking about the history of this stuff, you could say that around, you know, in the, in the late 1500s, this kind of artificial categorization and naturalization of differences of different human groups, that kind of started. In the 1600s, it started emerging more, but by the time you get to the 1700s, it became codified in the United States of America, even before the United States was the United States of America, by putting in the legal code white to differentiate it from Native American uh, and Africans who were brought here for labor. And this racialization process, I'm gonna go through it quickly, certain human characteristics are selected. Skin color, hair texture, the way your facial shape, cranial facial features. And then those become signs of, of some kind of meaningful difference. Then you sort these people, these various peoples into subpopulations based on those distinctions. So you can see that there's obvious differences between the light skin tone versus dark skin tone of certain people. The hair texture is different. The facial features are different. Uh, ancestry, one say is European descent, the other is African descent. Then there are certain attributes, certain traits that are uh, put on these different, um, uh, these different sorted groups, temperaments, talents, behaviors, and that becomes racial types, right? Then those differences that are put into racial types, white, black, for example, are then essentialized as, these, as if these are just natural distinctions. And then based on that essentialization, racism, we act as if you treat people based differently based on those racial differences and that justifies unequal treatment, okay? So this process, I want, I want folks listening to envision a graphic because I actually use this graphic in, in my work. You have race at the top, the word race. And then you draw an arrow down to racialization. Then you draw another arrow over to racism. And then the arrow goes back up to race. But what's in the middle making all this happen is a racial worldview. Seeing the world through the lens of race, right? So let me just very quickly talk about worldview. Now, of course, folks who are listening to this podcast are, are familiar with developmental theory, uh, the idea of worldviews and, and cultural codes. I mean, that's, that's uh, probably um, 
a matter of course for the folks listening. But I like to give a specific definition of worldview that comes from John Verveke, who um, has a, a series that I'm sure, again, folks who are listening to this are aware of on Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, a 50-part series on YouTube. And he defined worldview as two things at the same time, two things simultaneously, a model of the world and a model for acting in that world. Right. So then that worldview turns an individual into an agent who acts and it turns the world into an arena in which those actions make sense. Now, let's see how we apply a racial worldview with that definition. So then if we see the world through the lens of race, then it becomes a racial worldview is two things simultaneously. One, it's a racial model of the world. And two, it's a model for acting in that racial world. It turns the individual into a racial agent who acts, and it turns the world into a racial arena in which those actions make sense. You see how insidious this is? <laughs> and that's that's what we've been dealing with, okay? Now, the person who uh, is a pioneer in talking about and, and defining and explicating racial worldview is a late anthropologist, Audrey Smedley, the author of a book called Race in North America, Origin and Evolution of a Worldview. She was Carlos Hoyt's one of Carlos Hoyt's dissertation advisors, okay? She passed away a few years ago at the age of 90. And she defined racial worldview as meaning, I mean, believing and acting in accordance with the social convention that people can and should be regarded as members of one or more of a handful of nebulous, restrictive, contradictory, and conflicting subspecies called races, okay? So the racial worldview is in the middle, making all of this, you know, emboldening and inhabiting all of this, this race to racialization to racism process. And it's, it's just, it's once you can analyze it in that way, once you can change it from, a subject to an object and look at it, you can say, whoa, look at that merry-go-round. Look at that wheel that we are caught in of race, racialization, and racism, all grounded in a racial worldview. And once you see it and it becomes an object, the question becomes, what can we do to get off that rat race or get out of that rest race, to get off that wheel. And what I call that is deracialization. What Carlos Hoyt calls it is anti-racialization. What Sheena Mason calls uh, is her theory of racelessness, that human beings, I mean, we know the old saying, yeah, there's this race, there's one race, the human race. But she takes it deeper uh, in her work by saying that we need to look at ourselves as raceless. We are not members of a subspecies called a race. It's not true as biology, and it's not even true as a social construction. And the reason is because what has been socially constructed is 
this racialization process, which becomes racism. Okay, because what happens is people who say, well, it's just a social construct, it becomes a way to hold on to the concept of race itself and not counter it, not confront the very concept and idea and the process that keeps it alive, which is racialization and that racial worldview. And that's what we're doing. The three of us and others are confronting the very concept, the very process, the very detrimental and insidious worldview that keeps it alive. Powerful, powerful. And, you know, um, like a few things come up here, but one of the things we're talking about now at Coaches Rising is like, what are the worldviews that we're leaving behind or that we're questioning, that it's time to question. And um, because as coaches, we are we're coaching within a worldview and that, um, you know, these worldviews that like the, the modernist worldview that might be, you know, uh, disintegrating uh, was coaching born out of this worldview or was it born as a response to this worldview? But at the least, um, you know, it behooves us to kind of being, begin to question on this deeper level that you're talking about uh, because it's so insidious in the way you're describing, you know, and, um, and so, I guess, like, I wonder, therefore, you know, where that leaves us, because on the one hand, you know, we've had racism, you know, like the, the, this uh, racism, which has occurred all around the world. Um, and then and then in recently, in recent years, it feels like in response or um, uh, what has emerged is that kind of, um, you know, these movements like um, anti-racism and, and ideas like white fragility, uh, white privilege. Uh, and, and so they, we could probably say that they're also still occurring within this racialized worldview. And that, but those people might say, you know, we, we need to be here because uh, we need to combat, you know, this, this white privilege, this white supremacy, this kind of traumatization that's occurred over hundreds of years and it's 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 good for us to be able to 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 speak in this way and point things out because it's part of the process of moving towards uh, a raceless worldview uh i'm wondering what you think about that if i i you think agree. what you said is true with the exception of them ending up by saying we need to get to a raceless worldview i don't i don't think that I don't think that's a step that they usually take. I don't think that's a goal that they have. I think that they assume that when I say deracialization and, and, and Dr. Mason says racelessness and Carlos Hoyt says um, anti-racialization and Thomas Chatterton Williams says unlearning race uh, and Camille Foster is a race abolitionist. <laughs> I mean, I, I think what they, what many people hear is colorblindness. And that's something right. that the, the anti-racists are like, oh no, you hear this colorblind nonsense, you know, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about being blind to anything. We're not talking about not acknowledging that there are human differences among individuals and among groups of people. There are human differences. Sure there are. There's a history of racism. And part of that history has been the ideology of white supremacy, 
That is true. This is this this this, this is a fact. I think that you can look at something like white privilege. I mean, I try to look at things in kind of a developmental fashion. So even with that, there's levels. So if we acknowledge that there are certain privileges that come to people who have been racialized as white, and that the further we go back in history, the more privileges definitely accrued. I mean, up until the 1960s, when you had the civil rights movement, and you had the change in the legal structure of white supremacy and of legalized, codified in law racism, um, you could definitely say white supremacy was, and then of course you have the evidence of white supremacy in the history of the United States with lynching, with the with cities where there was black communities, you know, uh, Negro American communities that were destroyed because you had people that were, who are these people over there building businesses and, and becoming citizens? No, 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 they got to stay under our foot. That's all real. But if you look at it developmentally, would it be better to say, well, if we're going to talk about that, there's white privilege, then there's a, there's a, 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 a deeper dimension where people feel that not only are there privileges, but that there's a superiority. If you're white, you're superior, okay? White superiority. But the highest, or should I say the lowest level, is white supremacy. I mean, we can look at these things in a developmental fashion and talk about it. But you just don't throw it around and just mix it all up. I mean, to me, white, to, to white supremacy, that's the deepest, most insidious. I mean, and you're just going to throw that term around willy nilly like that's no, no, that's 60 years ago. You could talk about that more. There are some people who who do believe that still but their numbers are so small. Then there are some people who believe in the, in the ideology of, of race and believe that if they are white, if they're uh, racialized as white, that they actually are superior to other people. They may not feel they're supreme. They can look at statistics and say, yeah, um, on certain tests, um, Asians generally do better. That uh, yes, when you look at the statistics, uh, there are some Nigerians who, you know, have done better economically than, quote unquote, white people. Uh, they still feel, though, that white people, generally speaking, are superior. OK, <laughs> you know what I mean? that's true. And then there are people who could be oblivious to the fact that just because there are certain things that are ascribed to whiteness, that 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 may then accrue to them having certain benefits in a same situation with other people who don't have those same uh, ascriptions, there could be certain privileges. Okay, so we could talk about that, but you don't have to throw things around without one looking at it in a developmental fashion, or maybe I should say a de-evolutionary fashion because these are very negative attributes. I don't see this as positive. So these are negative attributes. But I'm not, so So you see, we just talked about it, right? I'm not avoiding talking about it. I'm not in denial about the history. I just want to move beyond being caught in 
uh, in it. I want us to be able to get out of the trap of staying caught in it by saying, okay, no, race is not biological. We know that, but it is a social construction and still not confronting the concept, still not fighting against these ideas and this process of racialization, not fighting against a racial worldview. And we do that how? Because you got to have something replace it. You don't just pull the rug from on the people. I mean, race is a social norm. There's no question. So what do I talk about to replace it? That's where culture comes in for me. Yeah, I, I want to know about how do we replace it. Um, I, would, I just want to like get a sense of what do you think the the impact is of us holding a racialized worldview in terms of our development. You know, I'm just thinking about what you said about um, you know uh, people like who hold, uh, like I don't know Ibram Kendi. If we want to name people, but you know they they, they maybe they don't want to get to a, a, a raceless place. Um, just so, so that, and then what? What? What is the impact on our, on in terms of our uh, the negative impact? Do you think in terms of the way we maybe collaborate or create together, or just express our you know our creative genius? What you know? What's the negative impact? And then then we then I want to talk about yeah. How? Do, what else? How else we could we see it? You know, what is cultural okay. intelligence? What replaces it? Yeah, yeah. I think it holds us back greatly. I think that it's held back the development of American citizenship. I think it's held back the realization or the moving closer to democratic and American ideals. Um, I think that it causes us to view each other in ways that are so much based on a fallacious way of seeing the world that it interferes with basic communication and, and, and us being able to work together. And when we look at the wicked problems we have in this world, we need to be able to work together quickly. If you, you know, if, if you're at, if, if you are in a situation where you're um, in a, in a war and you're in a ditch and you're fighting with Look, if they're your if they're your 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 teammate and there's someone who's fighting with you, the question is how much skills do they have? How loyal are they to the cause? You know what I mean? Let's look at things like you're beyond the simplistic, reductive racial uh, uh, way of seeing things. Now, I do want to say this about someone like Ibram X. Kendi. I don't think that his goal is racelessness. And I think that is because he does not believe it's possible. I think there are a lot of people who think that the idea that we can actually deracialize is so unrealistic as to be a fantasy or to be some type of dissociative psychological disorder. I mean, really, there are people who believe, really, you really think, yeah, but isn't it true that for a long time, for maybe 1500 years, we thought the earth was the center of the universe. There was a geocentric worldview that turned out not to be true. We revolve around the sun, heliocentrism, okay? So, you know, just because we have seen things through this lens over the last 400 years doesn't mean we have to continue. 
That's one thing. Two, now this is more a bit skeptical or even cynical. I mean, there are people who their careers are based on the existence of race, racialization, racism, a racial worldview. So there are incentives to not necessarily work towards its abolition, to work towards transcending it. If you are actually uh, able to create a pretty good career based on it, you know what I mean? Now I say that's cynical because, you know, I don't want to say that either an Ibram X. Kendi or even a Robin D'Angelo don't truly believe what they're saying, but since neither of them are open to actually engaging in conversation with others who may have a different perspective, and because they have been able to, through their book sales and through all kinds of support and resources that have been put their way, uh, particularly since 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, um, I have no problem naming them by name because they are they are prototypical of the ideology that we're talking about and their distinctions among them, but they're prototypical of it. They have benefited greatly financially from it. And again, they will not engage in debate or conversation. And democracy is largely based on having conversations, having pluralistic disagreement, being able to talk through and argue through stuff. You know what I mean? That's how we move forward. And they're not willing to do that. So I have no problem calling them out, okay? And I don't think that either one of them, one, believe is possible, and two, I don't think they're incentivized to work towards the direction I'm, I'm trying to move in and that others are trying to move in also. And maybe you could share now, like what, what, what's the view that you would propose is generative for us? Right, you mentioned, you mentioned modernity. So one view of cultural intelligence comes from my colleague, Steve McIntosh, who is the founder of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, where I serve as a senior fellow. So his particular way of viewing cultural intelligence is that we develop an understanding and facility with understanding various worldview stages over time. That we understand that we as a, as a human species have gone through various stages of development. And even, and even as individuals, we go through various stages of development. So if we take his model is, okay, if we look at three basic worldviews, a traditional worldview, which you can say attends to the inclusion of religion and myth and has certain boundaries and rules based on those myths and those religious beliefs. Then you have modernity, where you have the scientific revolution that comes in and really brings in a worldview that utilizes scientific discovery to have these incredible technological advances as well as an economic system 
where the technological advances in the economic system worked in collaboration to advance uh, the West and being able to create more material wealth. Now, of course, the underside of that narrative is the labor that was, you know, that was stolen, that was exploited, the oppression, Native Americans here in the United States, you know, the lands being uh, pilfered, treaties being broken. I mean, all of that, there's an underside to this. This is not some a kumbaya tale of progress uh, with no downsides and no shadows. Um, so each worldview, traditional, has shadows and light, has pro and con, um, has limitations and positive aspects. Same thing for modernity, same thing for post-modernity. So traditional, modern, postmodern, um, where the postmodern perspective um, deals with us expanding our sphere of concern to include more than just our own religious group, our own ethnic group, our own national group, so that you can have a, a, a more of a world-centric view of the planet itself. Now I'm giving you the positive dimensions, right? At the same time, we acknowledge those who have been on the underside of modernity, who have not been able to fully benefit from the advances that modernity represents and really highlighting those, the, you know, those groups of people and advocating for them. That's, you know, of course, the downside or the shadow side of postmodernism is that it's a stance, it's a strong stance of critique, a strong stance of deconstructing some of the downsides of the progress of modernity, but it's not a vision for how do we advance and generate beyond the critique. Okay, so that's one way of looking at cultural intelligence. Another way of looking at cultural intelligence is by harking back to John Verveke's definition of worldview. And in this case, I want to share that same definition, but with the word cultural instead of racial. So a cultural worldview is two things simultaneously a cultural model of the world and a model for acting in that cultural world. It turns the individual into a cultural agent who acts and it turns the world into a cultural arena in which those actions make sense. So I give this metaphor, I say, you know, looking at things through a racial worldview is like seeing the world in black and white and gray. And a cultural worldview is like seeing it in high definition color, you know, with all of the beauty that that entails, you know? Um, and, and that's for me, culture, culture, let me state this, is, is a neutral dynamic. Culture is how human beings extend our biological inheritance and 
grow our cognitive capacity, uh, grow our ability through mentifacts, through ideas, through art forms, where we can put our meanings and values into artistic and say technological development um, and grow thereby, okay? That's one way of looking at, at, at what culture is. Uh, culture is, is also, and, and some of this is going to uh, remind folks of, of um, the lower left quadrant of, of uh, Ken Wilber's four quadrant model, uh, but you know, shared agreements, shared symbols, shared ways of seeing the world. That's another way of looking at culture. Um, and another approach is developmental, you know, where, you know, through education, you cultivate and grow your human capacity, generally speaking, and become more cultured, right? So even though culture is a, is a neutral dynamic, it's, it's, it, culture is, but it can be described, it can be understood, and it can be used as a way to become a cultural agent in the world. So how do we apply this? One way is to, when we look at people who are racialized as white, as black, uh, or even to use a term, because they don't say yellow anymore, Asian, look deeper. Where specifically are those people from? What part of the world? And then when you go what part of the world, let's say take the United States, what region are they from? Because the region you're from, the environment is going to impact you, you know? And then you look deeper at individuals. What, what are they, you know, what are their spiritual beliefs? What are their practices? You know, what are their interests? I mean, these, you know, this, this is a building upon, to kind of integrate it with, with Steve's approach, let's say modernity, right? That's where the dignity of the individual came to fore. That, that really came to fore with, with modernity. And that's where we talk about, you know, liberal democracy, because you're talking about the dignity of the individual. Well, that's a base, that's a foundation to build upon, but also the uh, morality that comes from, and the narratives that come from the earliest stages are also important. That's one thing about an integral or metamodern perspective is it attempts to understand the worldviews that have come before and that are still here but to integrate them in a way where you take the, ideally the best that comes from them as a foundation to build upon for a more generative future, where you realize that there are some people centered in particular worldviews. And if you're fortunate enough to have this understanding of an ability to not only understand it, but be a cultural agent, then you can communicate with people based on where they are. Now we're getting to how people coach others, you know? you have a better understanding of the individuals you work with, the teams that you work with, because there's a rich territory, a rich human territory that goes so far beyond looking at things through the lens, the lens of race that it, it, it begins to just look like, like such an absurdity because it actually is. And when you have a cultural perspective, you can appreciate the differences among human beings and look at them as, as beautiful. But also, this is not kumbaya, 
but also those differences become the basis for conflict. So then you get to the Jazz Leadership Project as a concept called antagonistic cooperation. This is one of the fundamental principles of the Jazz Leadership Project and is found in jazz music through jam sessions, the cutting contrast tradition within hip hop, uh, the battle tradition. You know, this is where you actually, it's, a, it's an advance because you're actually taking those conflicts and you're playing with it. You know what I mean? You and, and you're doing it in a way where you can still respect the talents and skills of somebody else. It may be uh, a competitive, it may be antagonistic in that way, but you're still cooperating because you're cooperating together to get to a higher place together. So antagonistic cooperation is a concept we use for people to be able to look at challenge, conflict, and competition as not negatives, as part of the human condition. You take it to to the American democratic and pluralistic reality that we live in, you're going to have different divergent points of views, you know, and in conflict. But the question is, what can we do to better engage with one another, even if we are in conflict, even if we agree to disagree? I've been doing a lot of talking here. I haven't let you get in a yeah. word edgewise. Well, no, it's good. It's good. I mean, I'm just kind of absorbing and, and appreciating it. And, you know, I'm just thinking, um, you know, one thing that comes up is like, particularly because of what's happened in the last couple of years, the murder of George Floyd and, uh, you know, um, D'Angelo's work becoming more prominent, uh, Ibram X. Kendi's work becoming more prominent. Um, you know, like that, that racial worldview feels like it, in my own experience, became more prominent. And, and um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of positive sides to that in terms of, like, having myself reflect on on my privilege and things like that. But what, what it also brought up was a kind of, like, walking on eggshells kind of feeling or a feeling of being condemned, you know, like being just privileged uh, because of the color of my skin. And, um, and, and I guess why I'm saying this is because I can feel how it narrowed a kind of like playing field or a bandwidth of collaboration, you know, that, that, you know, you would, I would come in with a kind of somatic kind of, uh, feeling, you know, um, that would color a, an interaction before anything else had already happened. And, and some people might say, good, you know, good, good. You're, you're not, you know, being forced to think about your privilege and stuff, but I don't know. I don't know about that. There's something about the, what you're describing here, uh, which feels much more expansive, you know, this kind of, um, and I've forgotten the term you use now, but this, you know, this kind of like conflict, this generative conflict that, you know, uh, there's a kind of robustness to that. There's a, there's a, there's a kind of a creativity to it, uh, a generativity to it, which feels like, like it's a breath of fresh air as well. It's like, Oh, okay. It's needed, you know? And so, there's an expansiveness that I start to feel as you paint this picture. And there's something from what you share that feels like it's cohering, you know, like it's harmonizing again, um, as opposed to, you know, polarizing. And right. that's very significant. I'm just curious, what do you think about what I'm saying? And then, um, you know, we could probably talk about like how this might apply in coaching or in leadership development. I know you're working in places like Google and, giving seminars around the world and things. So, yeah. But what do you think about what I just said? And I think you're right. I think the feeling tone and the embodiment that you, that you allude to is very real. I've found that when I'm, when I do 
either virtual um, engagements, keynotes, or in person, that you can still talk about these subjects and not engage in what I call racial bypassing. We do not have to ignore or bypass the reality of existing and prevalent racism, and it's still, it's still here. Yeah, it's not disappeared, <laughs> though its external representation and, of course, being codified in law is not there. But when, but, but when you, the narrowness and the reductive piece that you feel is because the lens through which someone like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo are actually coming through is narrow. Let's take, let's just, I'm just going to deal with both of them. Okay. You have anti-racism, Professor Kendi. What about being anti-race? What about being anti-racialization? What about being anti-racial worldview? How about that? If you want to be anti-racist, one way of getting there is by being anti the concept, the process of creating it, and the lens, the world through which keeps it in place. To me, that's some real anti-racism, okay? White fragility. Well, if we look at us as, as each other as human beings, we know that, like you, you alluded to earlier, trauma is real. There have been many people who've been traumatized. There are many people in a situation who may be triggered and get upset. And that's not based on race, white fragility. I would say that based on race being a norm and, and racialization being a norm, that what has happened is there's been a concretization of certain habits. There's a, a gentleman who actually graduated from my same alma mater, Hamilton College, and he's a philosopher, his name is Terrence McMullen. He has a book called Habits of Whiteness. And to me, it's a, it's a better historical view of how this dynamic has come into place. He looks at it through, through American pragmatism, how it remains in place just through habits. So right, instead of talking right. about fragility, there's certain habits. So. If, if, if your identity, if you look at your identity as white, if you accept that, and you feel that that aspect of your identity is being attacked, well, if you're being attacked, you're gonna react in certain ways. You know, I mean, this is, and this is anything with an identity, whatever kind of identity, if I'm a, 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 a New York Yankee fan, and I identify with that really strongly. And I have someone who says, the Yankees ain't shit. I'm going to wait a second here. You know what I mean? So I mean, that's a kind of a, a silly example, but it's just true in terms of identity. So yeah, there's going to be, it. it's really more about being defensive, not fragile. It's more about being defensive because you're put on the defense often in these kind of situations, DEI often, not always, but you know, situations. So, I mean, if we look at in a, in a broader way, anyone could be triggered. People have gone through trauma and people can also be resilient. 
and have been and are resilient. There's also something called a victim mentality and a drama triangle where you've got the victim with the victim, the oppressor and the savior. You know, you have all of these yicky kind of <laughs> dynamics that are real, but they're human. It's not just about race or looking at through the lens of race. So, you know, but you know, she's been able to do quite well for herself, Miss um, D'Angelo. You know, the question is for the rest of us, how useful is it? How productive is it? How generative is it? I don't think it's very productive. I think what happens, what I found is interesting. I think for those who are truly not aware of the history of racism and of white privilege, white superiority, white supremacy, and they learn the history, it could be like a revelation. Oh my God, I didn't realize, okay? That's one level of understanding. And so they're like, oh my God, you've opened my eyes. I've become woke. But there's further awakening. There's further growth and development. That's not the be all and end all. I mean, Jewel and, and, and myself and a colleague of ours, great executive coach who you've had as a guest, Amiel Handelsman, we taught a course called Stepping Up, wrestling with America's past, uh, reimagining its future, healing together. And there were people who came into the course, people who are racialized as white, who were, you know, you could say Kendiites. And we introduced them to other ways of seeing it, some of which I've talked about, but not just that, we've introduced them to thought, ideas, philosophies of people like Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray, Stanley Crouch, ideas that are grounded in jazz and culture that are more generative inherently, that are more all-embracing of human differences and human sameness. What do we share in common? What don't we? And by virtue of that have been kind of frankly liberated from that being beholden to such a reductive way of seeing things. One of them, for example, came to the um, conference that I mentioned earlier with uh, Carlos Hoyt and Sheena Mason and I, uh, which we entitled Resolving the Racism Dilemma, you know, he and his wife came. And so I think this could happen for more people. We can talk about these difficult topics, but we can do it in a way where you're not making things worse, where you're not further concretizing a racial worldview and racial ideology by pointing at an individual. That's why I said foundation of the dignity of the human individual that came in modernity. You're not racializing that person and then saying, because you are blank, white, because you are blank, black, that's the way it was before, right? Because you are black, therefore, and as a bunch of negative stuff, right? It's not gonna work to reverse that process. We have to transcend the limitations of a racial worldview the process of racialization, the very idea of race as a biological reality and as a social construction. Because I'm telling you, 
the social constructionists. And it's not like they don't, some of them want to eliminate race. That's Sheena Mason's work is very important because she deals with philosophies of race and how there are people who think that race is a social construction, but they still want to eliminate it. Okay. So that's, you know, I'm not just dogging out social constructionism, but I don't, I, I don't want to leave any corner unturned where we're holding on to the ideas and concepts and frameworks that has been so destructive to our development as Western people, as Americans, as human beings. Now, again, see, I'm a blues man. So I look at the tragic reality of the human condition, but I look at the tragic comic reality of the human condition too, in terms of a, not just a tragic perspective, but what Zach Stein calls a post tragic perspective. And therefore, I can say, you know, the truth of the matter is, even once we deracialize, does that mean we're going to get rid of xenophobia completely? Probably not. Does it mean we're going to get rid of in-group, out-group dynamics? Probably not. <laughs> I think, I think hmm. these are aspects of the human condition. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. But just because they're aspects of the human condition doesn't mean we have to be beholden to them. If we truly believe in development and advancing and generating a better future and a better uh, self and a better collectivities, whatever those are, then we can look at those and say, you know something? That's an earlier part of our human development. That's an earlier part of our cognitive development, our psychosocial development, our cultural development. We don't have to be beholden to that shit. Once you go in advance beyond it, hey, let us, let us model it as coaches, because we actually co do some coaching with, with, with Jazz Leadership Project, and let's help our clients to not only develop, but to use Steve March's term, uh, unfurl and unfold what's already there on the inside that this has to be tapped into. Because those feelings, those generative feelings, the wider, deeper, that's on purpose, man, because it really is a larger vision. It's more capacious. It's more embracing. And so you can literally feel it and others can too. And that's the power of the music. That's the power yeah. of music. Exactly, exactly. I think it's a really beautiful, you know, kind of uh, unifying principle. You know, it's like the music unfolds, you know, uh, and, and human beings unfold. And uh, you said that you're, you're doing coaching with the Jazz Leadership Project. And I'm curious if you could say a bit about that in terms of what we've been talking about today. Is that is that coaching, you know, does it, does it, um, do you, explicitly coach around uh, a you know a racial deracialized worldview or is it more about you know that there are these principles from jazz that that just are you know really be beautifully um applied into leadership you know so it's more the latter it's yeah. more the latter so we we if we have a team or if we have an individual you know we we have assessments that we use 
we have an assessment by a dear friend and integral colleague, uh, Mark Palmer, that he's created called a position success instrument that will look at work style. How do you like to engage in the work that you do as a leader, as a team member? Um, and we see where that fits on a four quadrant graph, surprise. Uh, and this four, <laughs> this four quadrant graph, however, is more tied to the various ways of working that are necessary for organizations and teams. Then we put on that graphic, the, the instruments in a jazz band, and we, we, we mesh and marry them and integrate them. So we work with the individual or team and we'll say, okay, where are you on that graphic? What's the meaning of that? How does that relate to others where they are, right? And then we select of the four principles and six practices that we have, we select which ones most apply to not only where that person is, but where they would like to go and what their aspirations are themselves and also the folks that brought us in, you know, in, in terms of Google, um, they have um, a program that works with leaders and they brought us into that program to work with specific leaders. And so we take a look at where they are and we select particular principles and practices to work on. Now, in some cases, there's an implicit aspect that's cultural or even racial that you can say. So we work with one client, for example, who's Brazilian. And in his upbringing, he said that, you know, it was less about the I than the we. So when he's talking about his team, his tendency was to talk about we instead of the I. And his growth edge was to be able to talk about the I more. So we worked on with him individual excellence. We worked on him with him on other principles so that he felt more comfortable with declaring what he stands for, what his values are, and that not being against the we and the team. No, it's a bolstering of it. And people, is, but, but some people, maybe some people are a little too I-oriented, need to be more we-oriented. So you, so you work with people based on where they are. But when it comes to the racial aspect, we have a program called Diversity, Maturity, and Inclusion. And instead of diversity, equity and inclusion, because through maturity, we're able to look at how can we start off at a space and place where you acknowledge identity markers, race, gender, and otherwise. Affirmative action aspects, for example. And we, we acknowledge that layer, that's important to acknowledge. You know, again, we don't wanna bypass but we keep it going to add appreciating diversity for diversity's sake. But whenever you have true diversity, you're gonna have tensions that come from that diversity. And then we get to the next level, which is, which is managing the tensions that come from diversity. And that's where we use that concept, antagonistic cooperation. That's the principle, a couple of ways of putting it, cooperative competition, uh, uh, oppositional cooperation, you know, different ways of playing with it. But that's where that fits so that we look at how do you deal with the conflicts and tensions that come from it? But like in music, 
tensions can be released. And it's released through a highest level where you actually leverage the diversity and inclusion dynamics so that you make your teams and organizations stronger as opposed to it tearing things apart. So we do deal with it, um, but uh, it, it's more implicit in the model than explicit. And for folks who would want to deal with uh, the deracialization more directly, um, Carlos Hoyt, Sheena Mason, and I are actually uh, looking to extend the work that we did starting with that conference that we did together because it went so well that we are going to continue to work together uh, and people can probably speak to us about, about that, where we can go deeper, do a deeper dive into that aspect. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Maybe that's a great place to kind of bring our conversation to a close and, and just, you know, uh, I just love hanging out with you, Greg, for a start, you know, like <laughs> it's always so fun to be in the same space with you. Thank and, you so and, much. You know, I'm really, yeah, just, you, you know, your passion and dedication to this topic just uh really spills through you know and um yeah so that's really really engaging and um i i love it so so and i just want to you know people listening to this will probably want to know yeah what you've just been saying now where can we find out more about this and follow you and the projects you're in and be impacted by them so yeah could you point as you already are doing but maybe in some other places too we can Keep, keep Absolutely. Yeah. In the show notes, we can we can put various links, but, you know, um, we can start with jazzleadershipproject.com and, and take a look there. Um, there's a subdirectory, DMI for diversity, maturity, inclusion that you can find there, uh, you, but you'll be able to find out what we do. We have a blog that people can sign up for for free, where on Mondays and Fridays, we come out with content that comes through this lens and perspective that applies not only to organization development and leadership, but to social and cultural issues. Um, tune into leadership is that website, tuneintoleadership.com. Um, and those are two good places to go. I mean, uh, um, there's, I'm involved, as I said, in various projects, but I think in terms of uh, our focus here, those are the two best places to begin. Nice. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome, Joe. Thank you. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.